just made an observation there that that la- that last line of the second, the hope of nations in a baby's cry. I was just it's an interesting line because um, my baby was woke up crying at four a.m. and uh, I have no hope in that. So it's like Mary had all this. I, mean, I wonder if she was like what, during those times if she was like this is the hope of the world. I can get through this, but for us it's hope. All right. Well, if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews, and we're not gonna we're not gonna go all the way through Hebrews. We're gonna be we're gonna be jumping around in the book of Hebrews um, during the month of December. Um, but this will be our Advent study, and we'll be specifically looking at texts that are that uh, that that show us more of who Jesus is. Um, and I think that's particularly important, especially as we enter into um, this Advent season, this holiday season, this Christmas season, um, as we um, can get so overwhelmed with certain things. So, but we'll be in Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll be in those first five verses there. Hebrews chapter 1, this is God's Word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This is God's word, it's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful again that you have sent your son as the hope of the nations. God, I pray that you would help us to see this hope of the nations more clearly today um, through this text in the book of Hebrews. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and minds to understand what you have to show us from your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, so we are officially in the Christmas season. So, which means, pastorally speaking, you may now put up your Christmas decorations and put on the Mariah Carey Christmas album. You have my permission to do that. I'm sure a lot of you are already in the process of doing that or, or have started it a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I know for, this, for some that this season unfortunately induces more stress and busyness than it is uh, kind of joy and happiness. Whether that be from the pressure to push your budget uh, further to buy gifts or simply just being around extended family members uh, for longer than you like. And then sometimes you have these things in, in your Christmas celebrations, which can also be very good, but then wind up clouding for us what should be kept in, in perspective uh, amidst all of this, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's the one reason this, this whole season of Christmas exists, even, even, even in, in the world. 
whether they want to admit it or not, the reason Christmas exists is because of Jesus. But for some, uh, Jesus tends to get pushed to the background of Christmas. Either because we don't see him as, as central to this time of year or any time of year, really. Because if you're not seeing Jesus as central now, you probably don't see him as central to your life throughout the entire year. Or we just kind of like to jump on the train of culture and then we include Jesus in our Christmas, but we include him alongside Santa Claus and Elf on the Shelf or whatever else is out there that's new. And I think the problem that we have tends to be our lack of knowing who Jesus truly is. So my goal this Advent season is to hopefully present Jesus clearly from the book of Hebrews so that we all are better able to contemplate Christ more than anything else that we have on our Christmas to-do list. That we would be able to pause and remember what it is that God has done for us in sending His beloved Son. And so we'll do that this morning by looking at three points from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And now, don't let the, the shortness of the text fool you. This is a dense and comprehensive few verses that all deal with who Jesus is. And it'll, better, it'll help us better understand who He is so that we're able to contemplate Christ better this season. So the first point is God is not silent. The second point is what He is not silent about. And then the third point is why this is important to us. God is not silent. What, it, what He is not silent about and then why is this important? So God is not silent. Look at verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. The author of Hebrews uh, writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. In his book, uh, He is There and He is Not Silent, theologian Francis Schaeffer wrote, the infinite personal God is there, meaning He exists. He is, he is there. He is among us. But also, He is not silent. And that changes the whole world. And in fact, it does. As these verses are telling us, God has, has always been speaking to His people. As verse 1 says, through all times and in lots of different ways and through all sorts of people, God has been speaking to his people. He has never been silent. And all of these times and in all of these places and all of these people are all pointing to the same reality. One commentator wrote, the writer of Hebrews is inviting us to look at the whole sweep of biblical history and seeing it come to a climax in Jesus. And all of this has changed everything about the whole world. Because God is not silent. And the first place we see this, his lack of silence is long ago when he spoke to our fathers through the prophets. So when the author refers to our fathers, he is speaking about the Old Testament patriarchs that we've read since our childhood in Sunday school classes, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on and so forth. And he has spoken to them 
through specific people called the prophets. Now, the prophets, as, as the Jewish people would understand them, included the authors of the prophetic books, but it also included the authors of all of the historic books in the Old Testament as well. And this included men like Moses and David, who Moses and David both were, wrote psalms, so you could go ahead and just throw the psalms in there as well. As God says when he's speaking about Moses in Numbers chapter, chapter 12, verse 8, he says, With him, with Moses, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. So Moses is hearing from God, and then Moses is speaking for God as a prophet. So essentially what this tells us is that the entirety of the Old Testament is God speaking to his people about one specific topic. And that one specific topic is about his son, the Messiah, to come. So this also brings with it the establishment between, between the law of God, which we know as the, the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, and the Gospel or what we would call the New Covenant or the New Testament. That lets us know that, we, that, that all of these people and in all of these places are communicating the exact same message. So you need to understand this. So when you hop on the, the new Bible reading plan come January 1, this will help you get through those dense books like Leviticus and, and Numbers and places where we usually tend to give up is you remember that the entirety of the Bible, and yes, Leviticus and Numbers and all of those books, Lamentations, all of those, the thread that is running through those books all the way to the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ. That's who holds everything together. And that's who every message that, that the prophets preach was about. And it's here in verse 1 that the author tells us that we are not in the old days any longer. That now God communicates, uh, communicates to us in a different way, an even clearer way. John Calvin puts it this way. He said, our condition right now, that includes you, our condition is superior to that of the fathers. Superior to that of the fathers. So you and I sitting here today actually have an advantage over someone like Moses or King David or the prophet Isaiah. We even have, we even have uh, an advantage over the heavenly beings, the angels. Because as verse 2 says, in the last days, which is where we are right now, we are in the last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. 1 Peter 1, 10-12 sums the greatness of this reality up by bringing in all of the prophets and, and all of the angels when he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
And we get to look in those things because it's Christ who is revealing them to us. So this is a really important truth for you to nail down because one of the, one of the common objections to Christianity tends to be that if God exists at all, he isn't really a speaking God. That we can kind of keep him at a distance, we can keep him up there in the heavens, that he is this kind of, this kind of entity that's there, this, this light or this substance, however you want to describe it, that he's up there, but he's silent. That he's not speaking, and so, uh, so therefore it is up to you to figure it all out. But he's there just in case you might need a little helping hand here and there. So maybe this isn't always a, a physical silence. Maybe it's a silence that, you, that you, you don't feel like God is speaking to you in a specific way. So you're praying in a certain way, and God doesn't answer in that way, and so you think, well, he's silent. God's not listening to me anymore. He's not answering me uh, in the way that I want, and therefore he doesn't love me anymore. I came across this quote last night from C.S. Lewis that I found really helpful to this. He talks about the silence of God. He says, When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but a rather special sort of no answer. It is more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question like, Peace, child, you don't understand. So here's a reason why Hebrews was written. The title Hebrews is just another name for the Jewish people. So the audience to which uh, our, our author is writing is primarily Jewish Christians. And I say our author because there's debate on who wrote the, the, the book of Hebrews. Some think it's Paul, some think it's Apollos, there's all sorts of things. So we'll just say the author for now. So, so, all, so the, the audience that he's writing to is primarily Jewish Christians. So these are people who grew up in Judaism and now have believed in Jesus. So they, they've seen all of the ways of Judaism, they've seen all of the ways the prophets have, have been pointing to Jesus, and they've seen Jesus they've, and, and believed in who he is, and now they are walking as followers of Jesus. But for some reason, in the book of Hebrews, which may have been by persecution or some other kind of opposition, we're not, we're not sure, these Jewish Christians are thinking about abandoning ship. They're thinking about going back to their old ways. To go back to what is familiar. So things like animal sacrifices and, and keeping all of the feast and worship at the temple where their families are probably still at. Tangible practices that gave them comfort and security. Why? Why are they so willing to just abandon everything and go back to the old ways? Well, the author of Hebrews is obviously hinting at this because he's bringing up uh, how God spoke. And so, ultimately, what they believe is that God is silent. God is silent in the midst of their suffering. God is silent in the midst of their, their persecution and this opposition that they are now facing as followers of Jesus. And so, they're looking at their circumstances and saying, this Jesus thing is not what I thought it would be. So I'm going to go back to what's familiar, what's comfortable. 
And we've seen this pattern before amongst God's people, haven't we? We've seen it uh, in the book of Exodus. They've witnessed, God's people have witnessed God's clear work amongst them. Uh, they've, they've, looked, they've seen ten crazy plagues be thrown up against their enemy. And they've watched it happen. They've seen a pillar of fire go before them. They've seen God divide the sea in two, and they walk across on dry land, and then see their enemy get crushed by that same water that was just divided. And if you remember, this is such an incredible story in, in history that years later, after they've wandered the desert because of their complaining, when the spies go in to spy out the land that God is giving to them, it's Rahab who says to them, hey, we've heard about your God. We've heard about what your God did way back when he, he rescued you and pulled you out of slavery in Egypt and how he divided the sea and how he crushed your enemies. And, and when they heard it, she says, our hearts melted. Our hearts melted. And this is 40 plus years later. But for God's people, those moments that they got to physically witness, it wasn't enough to sustain them the first time they meet hardship. And if you remember, the first time they really meet hardship is really just a lack of food choice. It's not even persecution or anything that we might say, well, that's kind of a good way to complain. They just don't have the right kind of food. And they're ready to give up everything. They're ready to give up and go back to their oppressors in Egypt because of this. Maybe we were better off as slaves in Egypt, they say. At least the food was good. And we can look at all of this you know, with the Hebrew Christians as well, but also with God's people in the book of Exodus, and look at this and ask why. After, after they've, they've heard and seen all of these great and marvelous works of God, but even for these Christians reading Hebrews, some of them, some of them probably saw Jesus crucified or at least uh, knew an eyewitness who saw Jesus crucified. They were not far removed from what Christ had, had done in his death and in his resurrection. Some of these Christians could have been some of the hundreds that saw Jesus after his resurrection. And still they think, like God's people in Exodus, God is silent. He must not care about me, so I'm going to create my own reality. I'm going to do what's easiest, and I'm going to go back to my old ways. But we do the exact same thing, don't we? When things get remotely hard, you start to, to look back over your shoulder, a lot like Lot's wife did when she's looking back over her shoulder at the burning city that God said, don't look back. Maybe you're, you're tired of being single. The right person hasn't come along yet. Uh, but there's that one guy or that one girl at work or at school that is interested. And yes, they aren't a Christian, but at least I won't be lonely. Or your marriage isn't quite where you'd like it to be, so you begin to look elsewhere, whether that be to other people or pornography or, or maybe, and I've seen this happen before too, uh, your kids end up uh, becoming these idols for you. And you spend more time looking at them and investing in them than you do your marriage, and sometimes you end up treating them like your husband or your wife. Or maybe it's with your job. 
and you think, you know, I can make a little bit more money if I can just fudge the numbers here a little bit. Or maybe if I just spend a bit more time at work, I might have to, to, to go in on Sundays and have to miss gathering with the body, but you know it's worth it because I'm making more money for my family. And this can also seem, be seen within the context of a local church like Christ the King. When things get hard, you have a disagreement with someone. You get confronted in your sin. You don't like the commitment level of gathering a few hours a week with people that you have voluntarily chosen to covenant with. And so you think, I'll just move on. I'll just go somewhere else that's easier. You know what? I'll just stay home. I'll just catch it on the, the live stream. No offense to anybody catching it on the live stream. Or maybe it's a particular suffering that you're experiencing. And you begin to think that God isn't answering your prayer in the way you want Him to. And so you begin to believe God doesn't care. So you begin to pull away from Him. He's silent. And you think, I'm just shouting into an infinite abyss and all I can hear is my echo. But what our author is telling us this morning is that this is simply not true. So he responds to all of this in the entirety of his letter by showing how superior Jesus is to every possible thing that you could put in his place. Throughout the letter, throughout the book of Hebrews, we hear that Jesus is superior to the angels. I know some people like to put angels into a really high place, but Jesus is superior to the angels. He is superior to the prophets. He is superior to even people like Moses and Aaron and Joshua. His covenant, the new covenant in His blood, is superior to the old covenant. And what He is trying to say is, Jesus is better. He is better than your politics. He is better than your philosophical or religious ideas. He's better than your personal opinions. He's better than any human relationship you could ever have. Currently or in the future. He is better than your money. He is better than your job. He is better than your friendships. He is better than your family members. He is better than your plan for your life. Jesus is better. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12. I love Paul just I love how Paul always just kind of gets really raw and just goes to the absolute worst. But I think this is what we need to hear. Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. If anybody was ever afflicted or perplexed, it was Paul. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body, in the, body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death is at work in us, but life in you. So what this means is that you can endure simply because God has spoken. Simply because God is not silent. So second, 
What is God not silent about? I think that's kind of obvious, but we'll dive into that. So essentially what God is not silent about is why Jesus is better. And the author gives us three reasons to help us contemplate this idea, but it also helps us to understand who Jesus is. So here in these, 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 four, these next four verses, Jesus is described for us as our prophet, our priest, and our king. Our prophet, our priest, and our king. This is what theologians have long called the, the threefold offices of Christ. Now what this means is, if you're already kind of thinking theologically here, is that, that Jesus ultimately has one office, okay? He has one office, and that is of Messiah as the Messiah or the Christ. That is Jesus' main office. He is the anointed one. He is the only mediator between God and, and man. He is the Savior. But this one office of Messiah has three aspects to it. That of prophet, priest, and king. So the Heidelberg Catechism question that we read earlier gives us a nice summary of what this is. It states that the reason Jesus is called the Christ, the anointed one, is because he is our chief prophet. He is our only high priest. And he is our eternal king. So playing back into verse 1 concerning times long ago, we have the same three offices in the Old Testament that Christ now holds in the New. But instead of this, this being one person, it's three groups of people um, that, that were anointed with oil to signify their special office of either prophet, priest, or king. No one ever held one, uh, more than one of these offices. So for example, you have someone like David who was anointed king in 1 Samuel 16. Then you have uh, a man like Aaron who is anointed as a priest over God's people in Leviticus chapter 8. And then you have Elijah who is anointed as a prophet in 1 Kings 19. And there's lots of other examples in the Old Testament. So in a very limited way, we could say that each of their offices represents a a mini-Christ. Because what each of their offices is doing as king and priest and as prophet is pointing to the Messiah to come. Then as we come into the New Testament, the Holy Spirit takes the three categories and then weaves them together to give us a clear vision of Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And this anointing that Jesus receives... Uh, does not take place like it took place with David and Aaron and Elijah, but it is anointing uh, with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. To which Jesus replies, after he is baptized, he replies from the prophet Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And so here in our text this morning, we are probably given uh, one, of the, one of the best summaries, most comprehensive summaries of all three offices that Christ holds. We're going to work our way through each, each of them. So first you have Jesus, is, Jesus as prophet. He is, as one pastor put it, the ultimate revealer of God. That's what prophets do. They reveal who God is, and Jesus is the ultimate revealer of God. So as the prophets came up short 
you know, revealing who God is, Jesus' is revealing is complete and full. He doesn't miss anything about who God is because it's Jesus who perfectly reveals God's character, God's intentions, and God's commands. How does he do this? Well, looking at the first part of verse 3, the author says he does it by being the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, this word radiance means brightness or shining. So, remember, the author is writing to Jews. And the Jews, when they heard this word radiance, not a word that we often use in our English language right now, but when they heard this word radiance, in their mind, their mind went back immediately to how God was seen in the Old Testament scriptures. The author uses this to, to point them back to these Old Testament vision of, visions of God that describe God as bright and glorious, as radiant. So the reading from Daniel 7 this morning is an awesome description of this radiance. Just to read uh, a couple of verses. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, which is talking about Jesus. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Radiant, bright, and glorious. Or when Moses, if you remember Moses coming down from Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 34, and his face is shining so brightly after he has talked with God that the people were afraid of him. They couldn't even look at Moses' face because it was so bright that they had to put a veil over his face every time he came down the mountain. And this same brightness... The same glory that you see in God in the Old Testament is what we find in Jesus in the New Testament. This was made a reality in the Gospels, in the Transfiguration, where before his disciples and then also Moses and Elijah being there as well, Jesus became a shining, bright light. So much so that Matthew says in his Gospel, his face shone like the sun. So bright. And if you remember Peter, he's so dumbfounded by this, this amazing thing that's happening before him. The only thing that he can think to do is to say, hey, why don't we set up some tents or something? And I think it's because his, his brightness was so overwhelming. And then second, you have this, this other phrase in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the exact imprint. And this is a phrase that was used to describe during this time the, the, the image on a coin or the imprint uh, of, of an image on a coin. So referring to the exact imprint of, of a king or an emperor that would be printed on the money of that day. This is how they would use that phrase. And so this is the same language that our author is using to describe Jesus to us. He says Jesus is the exact imprint of God. Jesus himself tells us this, John 14, 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, you, you have to understand that, that no one in all of the world, no one else in all of the world can say that. No one can say that. You can't say, if, I can't say to you, if you've seen my kids, you have seen me. My kids are not the exact imprint of me. 
This is more than just saying someone to chip off the old block or, or, because they, or, or, or they have similar features as I do or, or their personality traits are kind of the same as mine. No, Jesus is the precise expression of who God is in every way. In every way. I like how one commentator put it when he was commenting on uh, verse 1. He says that the old ways, the old ways of speaking were advanced sketches, but these were sketches of kind of bits and pieces of, of who Jesus is. So you have one that would just kind of maybe sketching the, you know, the ear. Or you have somebody else who's sketching the nose and you have somebody else who's kind of sketching the hair out and they're, and they're making all of these sketches and, and the only way that we see it complete is in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the exact portrait of God. He's the original. And this is why he is the ultimate prophet, the final prophet, because he is revealing who God truly is in himself. So the second office that Jesus hold, holds is that of priest, or we could say the ultimate Savior. Look at verse 3 again. It says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So in the Old Testament, priests had many duties, but one of their main duties was to offer animal sacrifices for the people. And while they did this, they were constantly standing. There was no chair in the tabernacle for the priests to sit in because this was a work that was never done. They could never take a break from this. They could never rest from their sacrifices of animals because animal sacrifices could never take away the sins of the people. The priest had to perform the ritual over and over and over again. You can imagine after a long day of work in the temple that they were just covered in blood. So at the end of verse 3, the author tells us how Jesus fulfills the role of priest through the simple gesture of what you're all doing right now. Sitting down. It's an overly simplistic gesture, but it's a massive movement. Because the act of Jesus sitting down communicates that the work was finished. That the sins of the world had been atoned for in his life and in his death. Jesus as priest, as the high priest, sacrificed himself as the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice. We could say in a lot of ways the priests were now unemployed or at least that part of their job description was no longer needed. And Jesus utters this from the cross, doesn't he? When he says, it is finished. Because now the wrath of God has been fully satisfied. And when Jesus sits down, he's not sitting down on some metal folding chair that he's pulled out of the, the closet No, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high on his throne. Because, as his third office tells us, he is the king. He is the ultimate ruler. The author describes Jesus' kingship in several ways. He says in verse 2 that he is the heir of all things. 
which is what sons are in this time, uh, that the son would be the one to assume the throne once their father had, uh, had died and passed it on to them, and they would inherit the entire kingdom. Every part of it would be theirs. They are the heir. And so our author is saying Jesus is the heir, not just of, of, of a small kingdom and maybe a castle and a few people. He is the heir of the entire world. All of creation is his. All belongs to Jesus because he is the king. Another way we see that Jesus is king is that he is the creator of all things. John 1.3 agrees. It says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And yes, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, but you're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, that means Jesus was with God in the beginning, creating the world. He was there. Remember, Jesus runs from Genesis to Revelation. Without him was not anything made. And then Paul in Colossians chapter 1, he lays out this, this beautiful description of who Jesus is when he writes, For by him all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things. That's not just the sacred things. That's all things throughout the world, which means if Jesus removes his finger from his creation we cease to exist we won't just carry on and just in this kind of godless world we will stop existing which leads us to the third thing we notice in verse 3 about his kingship is that he upholds the universe this is what he's doing he is upholding the universe as king I encourage you this afternoon to take some time to read through Psalm 104. We don't have time to read it. It's a pretty long psalm. But in that, you'll see that it is God who is upholding and sustaining the world. And these same attributes are what are just ascribed to Christ. Because Christ is the king of the universe. And it will begin to give you this picture of who Jesus really is. That he is more than just this little baby born in a stable, but that he is the king of the entire universe. And we see this affirmed even at the birth of Jesus. When, when the three wise men come and present gifts to him, which is not at the birth of Jesus, it's actually like three or four years later that they actually make it and bring these gifts to, to the wise men. My, my father-in-law is a stickler for this, so I always have to mention this, that he always puts the wise men across the mantle, away from the baby Jesus. So when you go in his house, you'll be like, what's going on here? That's why. And he's right. It's a side note. So if you need to rearrange your nativity sets this afternoon, do that. But we see this. We see their declaration. Uh, they're not just saying, oh, we're so glad this baby is born, so we're going to bring this baby some gifts. They were searching for the king of God's people. And so their, their gifts were not just a pack of diapers and wipes and maybe some onesies and some bibs. These were, these were gifts that were fit for a king. And so by them coming to Jesus in this way, they were announcing his kingship to us, even when he was a baby. So seeing the threefold offices of Christ helps us to have a, a fuller picture of who Christ is, but it doesn't tell us why it's important. So I want to close by doing that now. Why is it this important to understand that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and our king? As one theologian put it, he said, 
to be a mediator, to be a complete Savior, he had to be appointed by the Father to all three and equipped by the Spirit for all three offices. He had to be a prophet to know and disclose the truth of God. He had to be a priest to devote himself to God and in our place to offer himself up to God. He had to be a king to govern and protect us according to God's will. So fundamentally, if Jesus is not all three, he is not God. And therefore, he's not superior over anything. He's not better than anything else that you could think of if he is not prophet, priest, and king because all three are essential to the completeness of your salvation. And the author, the author of Hebrews uh, continues to show this to us by pointing his Jewish audience back to what the Old Testament teaches them about Jesus. So starting in verse 5, and then you'll see it throughout the book of Hebrews. I know some of you are, are working your way through Hebrews right now, and you begin to see it where, where verbatim the author is quoting from the Old Testament. He's saying, this is, this is a picture of Jesus, this is a picture of Jesus, and he does this starting here in verse 5 by using two passages that early Christians would, would most often go to when they needed to say what had to be said about Jesus. So if someone was kind of misunderstanding who Jesus was, they would go to these two passages. One is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and then 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And so the author of Hebrews uh, uses this kind of like a catechism. And so he asks the question, for to which of the angels did God ever say, and then he quotes these two passages. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. To which of the angels has God, did God ever say, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? And the answer that would be in bold in our worship guide, that we would all recite uh, together, would be none. None. God has never spoken to an angel like this. God has never spoken to any of the prophets like this. Because Jesus is truly the anointed one. He is the ultimate son of David as God's own special and unique son. No one else in all of history, in heaven or earth, fits this paradigm except Jesus. Because only Jesus is Savior in all three categories, as prophet, priest, and king. And seeing this threefold office helps us to recognize that, that all of his works that he's doing throughout the world and throughout his life is saving and it is ongoing. So as prophet, because your sin blinds you to your continual need, as prophet, Jesus speaks his life-giving words to you that removes the veil from your eyes so that you can behold him in his glory. If Jesus is not prophet, that veil is still on your eyes. He's prophet so that you can see your need of him again and again and again. As priest, because your sin makes you unclean, and because your sin makes you unclean, it makes you unfit to come into the presence of a holy God, 
He cleanses you as a priest from all your sin. All of your sin. Every sin. It doesn't matter how heinous that sin is that you might be thinking about. God cleanses you in Christ from all of those sins. He makes you presentable before God. And then finally, as king, because your sin enslaves you, because your sin throws its chains upon you, Christ the king breaks the hold of Satan, sin, and death, and he makes you a son or daughter of righteousness instead. Christ as heir of the entire universe, through his life, death, and resurrection, makes you an heir alongside of him. You are a son or a daughter of the king. And all of this culminates at the cross of Christ. Because as one pastor said, I wish I could take credit for this because it's so brilliant. The cross is Christ's pulpit as prophet. The cross is Christ's altar as priest. And the cross is Christ's throne as king. That's a lot. But as we take all of this in, as we begin the Advent season today, I want us to to contemplate these things this week. Then, in, in its rawest form, Christ did not come to create a holiday. Christ did not come so that you could give gifts on Christmas Day. Christ did not come so that we could have parades and parties during this time of year. He came because we need a Savior who not only pays our debt, but speaks life to our withered soul. A Savior who not only dies for us, but lives and reigns for us as our King. A Savior who is God in all His glory in every way, who came down to be with us. A Savior who is Emmanuel. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you saw fit to send your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him might have life and have it everlasting. That you saw fit to to give us Jesus as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king. And within those three offices, we have an anointed, an anointed Savior. One, the only one who can save us from our sins and to make us presentable before you, God, as our Father. And so, God, I pray that we would give ourselves to this, uh, this, this, uh, this Advent season, that we, would, that we would contemplate more, that we would contemplate Christ uh, more um, directly, more thoughtfully, because we understand why you had to do this. Because we needed a Savior. And we pray all these things in the name of the Savior Christ. Amen.